0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I'm sitting here across from Quam Barry today. And I had the pleasure of reading her latest novel, We Ride Upon Sticks, at the end of last year. Like, it was was one of those things that I was really anticipating. (laughs) And it's it's finally here, and I'm so excited to talk to her about it. Welcome. Yay, fabulous. Thanks for having me. Oh, what a pleasure. We have this girl power field hockey witchy <laughs> teen movie super fun piece of fiction that is also really great commentary on um the world today and how it was and what we thought it was yes how how did you get there
1: well I have to think about how I got there, but I just like to say that when I think of the book, my joke is that I think of it as being like a green smoothie. So you know, so if you make your smoothie right, you can have kale in there, you can have spinach in there, but hopefully you don't taste those things because right. of the pineapple and the lemon and the apple in general. Uh-huh. And so this book, you know, it does have a lot of social commentary about the '80s because people now, when we're nostalgic for the '80s, we only think of the good things. Yeah, but obviously there are a lot of bad things about the '80s as well, right? But um, hopefully by using humor and those sorts of things. It allows me to look at the bad sides of the 80s, so things like, you know, the homophobia that we all sort of just took for granted, yeah. um, you know, the racism, the subtle racism, you know, in movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Some um, of
0: it wasn't subtle.
1: Yes. No. <laughs> very true. Very true. Um, so it allowed me to to go there and to think about those kinds of things in hindsight now that, you know, we're not, we still have a long way to go, obviously. But yes. uh, the world has changed in positive ways.
0: Yeah, it has.
1: Yeah. It's, and that's a good reminder, right? It is. Yeah. Sometimes it's... <laughs> I know. Some days, yeah. But as far as how I got there, so I myself grew up in this town, this town of Danvers. Yes, uh, Historically, the city of Salem back in 1692 was much larger. Mm-hmm. And so Salem also included an area called Salem Village. And Salem Village is where the first happenings occurred that sparked what eventually became the Salem Witch Trials. Right, And so um, the the Salem Village in 1752 decided to turn over a new page I guess and sort of <laughs> leave the past behind them and renamed itself Danvers and right. so today if you go to the North Shore of Boston you will see that the city of Salem for the last 300 years, ka-ching, has been sort of cashing in on the Salem Witch Trials and all that sort of happening. It's a tourist destination. Sure is. It's a super cute town lots of things to see and do but the town of Danvers has never gotten in on that game. It kind of hasn't been our thing. Maybe it's just too close to home. So Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I think it was maybe when I went to school, when I went away to college, so in 1994, that they maybe finally erected a memorial in Danvers mm. across the street from where the original Salem Village Parsonage was. So the Parsonage was where the Reverend lived, the Reverend Samuel Paris He lived there with his, I guess, his own children- at- um, his daughter was Betty Paris, who was again nine years old and was one of the accusers. Although she wasn't like a main accuser, and he also had he had a slave, he had an enslaved woman. So Tichaba, she lived there as right. well. And so again, you can go to Dammers and you can see just the excavated foundations. So the house doesn't remain anymore. But like I said, across the street now, there's this ginormous memorial. <laughs> it's almost like, oh yeah, we didn't talk about this for three hundred years. <laughs> but and here now, it is. Yeah, now we're gonna make this huge memorial. Um, <laughs> you can also, about a mile from there, see the Rebecca Nurse homestead. So Rebecca mm-hmm. Nurse was the oldest woman who was hung um, back in 1692, and her homestead still exists. They don't know where her body was buried. So both she and her sister, Mary Easterly, I do believe, were, were, all, were hung, but at different times. Um, and their bodies are believed to have been buried somewhere on the homestead. So that is a tourist destination that you can go and can see. And it's it's not visited very much at all. So it's not like being in Salem where there's throngs of tourists. Right. So the Rebecca Nurse homestead is definitely something to see.
0: Ooh. And, and how far is that from,
1: from Danvers High School? Um, from the high school, I would say it's probably like two and a half miles. Mm-hmm. And from the house where I grew up it's probably about a mile up the road. Mm. Um, so it's something, you know, you would pass it on the way to the mall. Like right, of course. To, yeah, yeah, you're going to the Liberty Tree Mall. You're like, there's the Rebecca Nurse Homestead. <laughs> um, and so these markers, these few kind of just pointings to ancient things were, you know, around in town. But mm-hmm. people generally thought of the witch trials as happening more in Salem. So again, like I said, it wasn't something that Danvers was really all that keen to claim is ours.
0: And and then tell me about what drew you to writing about the
1: 80s. So not to date myself, but yep. I was on a very good field hockey team. Um, <laughs> in 1989, our team actually made – we did make it to the state championship. Oh, my gosh. So obviously in the novel, the novel opens with the Danvers – Falcons women's varsity field hockey team being just down and out, <laughs> um, you know, getting their butts kicked uh, very badly at a summer camp. That was not the case though with the actual town of Danvers field hockey team. Like we've oh, always had, a always relie- been good. Yeah, we've all, you know, I have to say. <laughs> um, and so, but again, it's fictional in the book that they start off bad, and it's kind of a rags to riches story, and they they eventually yeah. turn it around. But so the reason why, again, in the '80s originally when I was thinking about writing the book, I had considered very briefly actually setting it in Salem, um. And I knew, though, from the outset that if I set the book in Salem in 1989, that I was going to have to do a lot of research because yes. although I know Salem, I don't know the ins and outs of it that well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but then I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually from the North Shore of Boston as well. And she was like, well, why don't you just set it in Danvers? And I was like, well, <laughs> oh, but nobody knows Danvers and they don't know the history of Danvers. And she's like- Even well, better. Yeah. And then she was like, why don't you tell them? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, she's right. So, And in doing that, it really just freed me up because I- I lived that. You know, I know right. what Danvers was like at 89. I know the field hockey scene. There's like nothing for me to research. Um, and it, it's, it just allowed me to just let loose my imagination.
0: Yeah. I mean, but – there, I mean, there are so many specific references to the 80s that couldn't have just been stuck in your brain all of those years. You'd be surprised. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I have
1: that kind of memory. Wow. Like, it's kind of – it's a little crazy. I, I met with some friends of mine from the field hockey team a couple of years ago, and we were having dinner, and I was talking about, do you remember this? They're like, what? How do you remember that? <laughs> you know? I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm sure that one of these days my mind is going to go because it's – yeah, it's, it's going to explode. too full
0: of yeah. – Advertise and copy.
1: (laughs) It doesn't know the things it should, but it does know these other,
0: yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I love that as a child of the 80s myself, uh, kind of remembering things that I had long forgotten. Mm -hmm. Because like, I feel like yeah, there are, are Spotify nostalgia stations, but mm-hmm. there's the real, like, toys and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and things like that are, are harder to...
1: Yeah. When I had my launch party in Madison, Wisconsin, where I live, uh, a couple of days ago, um, the party like, on the tables I had is like, party favors, I had a bunch of, like, retro games. Ooh. And a lot of my friends came in, they were also like, I can't believe you found this. So, for example, I was fascinated because we didn't have one. I was fascinated. I mean, everybody had a Rubik's Cube. Right. But then there were all these other puzzle, like... Rubik's Cubes and Wannabes. So there was like the Knock-offs, Rubik's... Yeah, yeah, there was like a pyramid. There was also like this thing called the snake, you know, where you could twist it and make yes. it a So I had that, you know. There was... I looked on eBay. It was $100 and I didn't end up buying it. But there was this thing called the Missing Link, which was another kind of... So I had like all these different games and things like that. And people were like, how? <laughs> where did these come from? I'm like, mm, yep, here they are.
0: Pop rocks and... Uh, <laughs> and then I, I love your decision to, of course... Tell the story in the first person plural in the voice of all 11 members of the field hockey team.
1: Yeah. Was was that something you had... Wanted from the start? Yes. So, you know, very famously, many people are familiar with, obviously, Jeffrey Eugenides' The Virgin mm-hmm. Suicides. And in that book, we get a group of teen boys who are watching this family of girls. Um, so I always knew that I wanted it to be a we plural voice. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take me that long to figure out who the we belonged to. But originally, just for a few pages when I first started writing it, I had thought that maybe the we voice belonged to the entire School. I thought, maybe it's the oh. school and the school are watching these girls. And then that didn't really work out. And then I thought, maybe it's actually um, the freshman team. So again, right. you have your freshman team, you have a JV team, you have a varsity team. Yes. There's a way in which freshman girls oftentimes like idolize the senior girls. You know, like they watch them they know everything that they're up to. And I thought, well, maybe it's the freshman girls. But it just got a little bit too complicated because then I would be like, well, how are these freshman girls in class with the senior girls? How would they know? Right. Certain th-? it, it, yeah. And so pretty quickly, though, I did realize, oh, it's just the... The team itself. And so my joke is that there's no I in team, you know mm-hmm. as they always say. And so that's why no I decided I. on.
0: Um, and, and yet, unlike Eugenides, you do get to really go into the points of view of all
1: of the different members of the team, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. It's the kind of thing, as people, somebody has asked me, you know, how did you plan that out? And fortunately, I'm the kind of writer, at least as of right now, I mean, it can change tomorrow, but I don't plan anything. And so... It's really it was just instinctual because if I really thought about it like okay this is supposed to be this we voice then how is it we're suddenly just <laughs> with one character you know I just I it just seemed instinctual to me like okay it's a we voice but then at times there is just one character by themselves you know so I didn't I didn't overthink it cuz if I had overthought it I think it would have been difficult to try and figure that out
0: no I, and it works so well and of course it, it also speaks to the conformity that was necessary in the 80s and, yes, the team spirit, mm-hmm. it all goes into mm-hmm. that, yeah?
1: Yeah. I also think of it, too, in terms of just sports mm-hmm. and um, fanaticism in a kind of way. Um you know, there's something about when you put on a jersey, it's an identity. You know, you yes. become that thing for good or for bad. Like, obviously, we see in professional sports ways in which fans sometimes go nuts in bad ways, right? <laughs> and so, again, you know, the team becomes this idea of a coven. And, and in certain kinds of ways, mm. obviously, we find strength in teams and we find strength in communities. And so I was interested in exploring both sides of that, like the positives of right. belonging to a quote-unquote tribe and the negative things about that. Right. Um,
0: t- I, I, I- – Let's go into a couple of the personalities of the members of the team because I love them all. (laughs) Um, Who did you start with? Who who was your anchor, do
1: you think? I think, you know, they all kind of – I had pretty good feel for all of them but it is true that the bubbly go-getter Abby Putnam uh-huh. who was one of the co-captains she was definitely with me for a very long time because I knew she so her name is Abby Putnam mm-hmm. um, back during uh, the Salem Witch Trials there was an accuser an 11 year old girl I do believe named Anne Putnam Jr. her mm. mother was Anne Putnam Sr. Ann Putnam Jr. was one of the more uh, vocal accusers of people and her accusations led to the hangings of many folks. Oh, Interestingly okay. again the epigraph at the beginning of the book is an actual Um, it's her confession. So when she's um, an adult, about 20 years after the witch trials of 1692, she asks for forgiveness, you know, in the Salem Village Church. She stands up in church and asks for the community's forgiveness. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to have somebody who was a direct descendant of her. Mm. So again, her name at the time was Ann Putnam. And so I thought, okay, Ann Putnam. And then a name that's kind of, you know, like Abigail. like oh, Okay. So it's right, Abby, right, Abby right. So she, in many ways, she is the anchor. She's the central character. She's the, the captain. Um, and so she was the character who came to me first.
0: Um, and I, I certainly feel like, you know, there's the character from Oh, gosh, now I'm forgetting all of these things. But the Reese Witherspoon character in election,
1: Tracy Flick,
0: Tracy Flick, how yeah, could I forget yeah. that name? But she, I, I started out thinking that she was a
1: little bit like that. Interesting. She's she's definitely positive. Like, she sees the positives. Tracy Flick, to me, though, seems a little delusional. I don't, right. th- I don't think Abby Putnam is delusional. No, I
0: don't think so either. Yeah. Yeah. I love the touches of, well, we're not sure what it is. Is it witchcraft? Is it um, just figurative language? Um, but I, I took a real liking to Jen Fiorenza, yeah. whose, whose bangs are so teased <laughs> into a great curl. That um, it, it becomes sentient, perhaps.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think of um, that particular – so Jen Fiorenza, um, you know, sort of the foil to Abby Putnam. And, and the thing is, even uh, even though this, she's her foil, like they're still great friends. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where you know, it's described in the book that they've known each other since childhood and, you know – even though they go their separate ways from time to time, like at heart they're still friends. You yeah, know? Um, And in thinking about them – And so again, Jen Fiorenza, as many people in the 80s, has a tremendous hairstyle that <laughs> takes time to – do every morning. And her hairstyle has a name. It has a nickname. It's called The Claw, as many teen girls of that time had claws where they would, you know, style their hair in a certain kind of way. And um, the question becomes, you know, does her claw sort of begin to take over and have a life of its own? I think of The Claw as being sort of her id. You know, yes. it's, it's the thing that, you know, it's it's not censored. It's not filtered in any kind of way, <laughs> shape or form. Um, so yes. I love it.
0: And And so there's this conceit that the girls on the team at least believe that if they sign this book um, with Emilio Estevez on the cover,
1: yes. that strange things, strange great things can happen to them. Yes, yes. Um, and thinking about the idea of witchcraft, I have to admit, I didn't necessarily research it. I mean, I know a little bit about, you know, the history of um, witch hunts in Europe and, you know, like thousands of people killed mm. both men and women but predominantly women. And it's the idea that you know witchcraft through the ages I think has always been seen as a tool of female empowerment. It's just that many hundreds of years ago female empowerment was a bad thing and would need right. to be suppressed, right? So it's like women who stood out for whatever reason, it's because maybe they weren't mothers or maybe they were too strong or maybe they were they didn't fit into traditional notions of what being a woman was. Interestingly, um, one of the first women hung in Salem was this woman I think named Bridget Bishop. And she was attacked owner, And she, from what I know, she had actually been accused of witchcraft before, but had somehow – it never came to anything. And, but this time around, it, it actually had legs. And one of the things that she was um, – that, you know, was written up against her was that she liked to wear red. You know? Uh-oh. Um, and again, she actually was hung. Oof. And so in thinking about these kinds of things um, – to me, then, the aspect of, of witchcraft in this book is it's the idea of empowerment, you mm-hmm. know? So I think about the girls 300 years ago in Salem Village, they didn't have that many options available to them. I mean, no. they were living in a time when a woman could be hung because she wore red, right. right? And so I was interested in like, what happens if you take those same girls 300 years later in a very different world? What kinds of ways will they create mayhem on their journeys into becoming who they, who they want to be?
0: And, and I love that there is y- – y- the reader knows right away that they are reminiscing about this time and they have the perspective of the now. And so it's easier to look back and identify all of the ways which girls were more oppressed or repressed than, than they are today, even. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, and I've been I've been saying in various interviews, so I mean, I love my mother. I loved my grandmother. Mm-hmm. But it is also true that from time to time, a word that would come up would be the word ladylike. Mm. You know, they would tell us like, oh, that's not very ladylike, you know, but I never have that memory of them saying various things to my brothers about being gentlemanly or what have you. Right. Um, and so I was interested in creating a world in which girls aren't interested in being ladylike, you know, and they're chafing at the bone to not be ladylike. Um, because oftentimes, I think being ladylike is kind of a suppression of who we are.
0: Yeah. And you talk about there's one member of the team, Becca, who was developed very early. And, and she talks about how you have to be kind in the face of male desire. Mm Because that's what we were taught in the 80s. That's Mm -hmm. not something to – you smile. Mm
1: -hmm. And again, sadly, like that really hasn't changed that much. You hear these stories about, you know, young girls who say no to somebody asking them to the prom and terrible things happen, you know, what have you. That – and again, the book goes into it a little bit and I'm not the first person to say this at all, the idea of just at what ages we learn that. So when you're a little girl and you're on the playground and a boy bites you, somebody says, oh, he has a crush on you, you know, or what have you, and then that's what you learn – you learn that that's supposedly what it's like when a boy likes you, um, as opposed to you know him not biting you.
0: <laughs> and certainly, I've seen enough '80s movies where like a girl can have her character is big boobs. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the extent of it. So mm-hmm. it's it's lovely to, you know, build mm-hmm. a person around that. Mm-hmm.
1: And thinking about it, so there are 11 chapters in the book, and each chapter um, we get uh, the perspective or the point of view or the life story of a different character. Mm-hmm. And I wanted each chapter to also deal with a different issue that teens were dealing with at that time. And so in thinking about it, that, that was a particular teen story that again, you don't hear that much about, about the, the woman who did develop early, you know. But I remember those kids, you know, in sixth grade or fifth yeah. grade. There was always, like, yeah. one boy who already, like, had, like, five o'clock shadow, you know, and there was one girl who obviously, like, was, like, a woman. Um, and just, again, how that, you know, influenced their childhoods.
0: Yeah. It, cut it short. Yeah. Um, I love how many of them smoke parliaments. <laughs> <laughs> Parliament. but
1: Are those still around? I don't even know. Those still, I, I assume they're still around. I
0: assume they are. Yeah. It seems like a very eighties, nineties. Smoking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But there's one character the the cute one. Little Smitty, who, who smokes cigars. She
1: does, yeah. So the whole thing with Little Smitty is that, I mean, she has maybe the biggest sort of arc as far as what embracing her inner darkness mm-hmm. releases. So, you know, at the beginning of the book, although you don't really see it too much, but you hear that she used to be all sunshine and smiles and, you know, sugar and spice and all that kind of fun stuff. And in releasing her inner darkness, quote unquote, she's really freed and really becomes a different person, but in a good way. I mean, she's definitely, you know, Mischievous and yes. cigar smoking and all these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, so she has, so the, the inner darkness has really released a, a very different person from who she mm. maybe thought she was going to be.
0: And then, of course, there's girl Corey and boy Corey. Yes. Yes. And boy Corey, I, you know, reading this book made me realize that in the 80s, not only was being gay almost unthinkable, but like even thinking about non binary gender. It it wouldn't even come up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was a character um, that I thought about a lot, how to portray their story and how to be truthful to that particular story. Um, I gave it a lot of thought. I talked with a lot of people. Mm. Um, yeah. It was uh, – It was a rewarding story to write, and I hope it resonates with people. And I, and and it's amazing to think, you know, friends of mine who talk about their personal journeys and how, you know, when you don't have a language, you know, there's no language to help you figure things out. And obviously we still have a long way to go, but the idea that now that there are all kinds of possibilities, you know, Mm -hmm. available to people. Um, again, I don't want to give any spoiler alerts as to like what happens at the end of the book, but at one point in the book, it's mentioned, um, that in the future, you know that there'll be all kinds of possibilities with respect to sexuality and gender and things like that um so so yeah,
0: and uh, yeah I, I think I think that is what gripped me about the book most is that we we see this narrow world, but we see the possibility that it's going to expand
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: um Sue who dyes her hair different uh shades of kool-aid
1: flavors.
0: <laughs> I f- I had forgotten about so many of those.
1: <laughs> I tried really; it was super hard. That's I, again. I I I'm not a big fan of for me personally doing a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Again, but the hardest thing to research was actually the various Kool Aid flavors, right? Um, because I realized in thinking about it, I stopped drinking Kool Aid at a certain age. You know, like I probably stopped. My mom probably stopped buying Kool Aid like when I was. Twelve or thirteen, sure. and then we just drink it. So it's true that I didn't know the flavors after the age of thirteen. So like soon Yoon's about you know seventeen years old, and I I didn't know like the last four years worth of flavors that would have been out there. And I did a lot of research, and it's like, well, did that flavor come out in the nineties or did it come out in the eight? You know what so I So I had to do quite a bit of research, on that. and I have to admit that some of them might have come out a little later than eighty nine. But I really tried oh, hard to no. be. Oh no, I tried very 80s hard to historians be historians. I know, would be very I know, I tried very hard to about- be. Yeah, to be accurate there. But. <laughs> The book starts
0: out with all of these characters' names coming at you and distinct parts of their personalities. And it's, it feels as though you won't be able to catch up. And yet,
1: you do. I hope so. Because it is true. You know, a friend of mine um, is thinking about, you know, she's a friend of mine. She's a scientist. She's French. And anyway, she's, um, She's thinking about writing, a, you know, a book or a short story. And I was just giving her some tips. I'm like, don't have more than <laughs> three main characters. She's like, wait, but don't you have like 11? <laughs> you know, I'm like, don't do what I, you know, do, do what I say. Um, yeah, there are a lot of characters. And so, you know, obviously I provide that chart in the beginning, which is the actual um, yeah. diagram of who plays where, which isn't really all that helpful unless you really know field hockey, well, ex- But it gets all the names, you know. It
0: does. And then what I did, I'm opening my
1: book now to mm. show you.
0: Is that I wrote little notes about uh-huh, each, uh-huh. and uh-huh. so that that turned out to be very mm-hmm. helpful. So it
1: was that and one of the things that did change very quickly like within the first chapter when I first started writing the book is, um, I came within chapter one. Too many girls had names that ended in Y, like Amy, Tammy, yeah, of course, Pammy, Pammy Jenny. You know, and I was like, oh, I gotta come up like. So I tried really hard <laughs> just to even have like their names be a little bit more distinctive, you know, and to to not. Sonically sound the same. Right. And then, because there are a lot of characters, so I did try when you first meet them to have like, whatever their marker is going to be, be there. You know, like, okay, they, here's somebody with the hair. Here's
0: right. Here's somebody
1: who's already pulling up her bra strap. You know, here's somebody who's doing this, right? So I, mm-hmm. I tried really hard early on to, like, establish who they were.
0: Yeah, that, that seems like one of the strongest tropes from the 80s, in, in terms of
1: movies at least, is that every character was a type. Very much so. And I was interested in that. So and that kind of made it easy in some ways to come up with just like the basics of who they were. Mm -hmm. And then the fun thing was to push through that. Right. Because yeah, if you just stop right there and it's like, okay, this is the cheerleader type or this is whatever, you really wouldn't it wouldn't be all that interesting. So it was interesting to think, okay, okay. And even for the secondary characters. So for example, you know, the football captain named Log. Log Winters. You know, (laughs) he's a a kind of type. And then it turns out, oh, he's actually kind of nice guy. You know what I mean? So to give even the secondary characters like another layer of complexity was something I was trying to do.
0: Yes. Um, Tell me, were there particular aspects of culture that you wanted to – particular movies or TV shows – um, that you wanted to address or inspired some of the action in here
1: um, particular movies I'm trying to think not I have to admit like when I was growing up I had fairly limited access to things oh interesting I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV and yet somehow I still managed to. <laughs> My mom was like, We were only supposed to watch like an hour a week during weekdays, and then on weekends we could watch more. But then, like, my siblings that we would band together and we would watch each other's shows too. You know what I mean? So, even though I was only supposed to watch an hour, I would also watch my brother's hour or my sister's hour, you know? And so, and then the thing is, um, our town actually, Dammers, didn't get cable. We didn't even get cable until the late 80s. So, growing up, you know, we only had like six or seven channels, right, you know. Right. And so um so in many ways it's it's funny to me that I don't actually have a, a a large library of knowledge about 80s TV or movies my mom back in the day because they first came out with PG-13 which yes. my mother took very seriously like yes. thinking, like PG-13, you know. It's I mean now like do people even make a distinction between I don't even know with their kids but I, I don't know. Yeah, but my mother was very serious about that, you know. And so I didn't see like a lot of these movies, you know, which were PG-13 at the time. And right. then by the time I was old enough to see them, they were gone or, you know, unless you rented the video or what have you, right? So, right, right, right. So, yeah, I wasn't thinking too much about movies or cultural – Things like that. But I was thinking about, like, politics, even though it maybe doesn't show up that much in the book, about what was happening in the world. Sure. So, for example, in the A.J. Johnson section, she's the only African-American member of the team, you know, and just how she sees the world and how her family sees the world. You know, there's the... uh, The Celtics were – in the 1980s, it was Celtics versus Lakers. And it's true that the Celtics were one of the last teams that had a majority of white players on the team. Right. You know, what the Boston Celtics represented to a lot of people. The character Um,
0: says Isaiah would never have gotten that much money. Right. You know what I mean? (laughs) Larry Bird.
1: Yeah. Because, again, there was – historically, there was a little tiff where Isaiah Thomas did say that Larry Bird was overrated (laughs) because he was white, you know. And so – like I said, I, it was those kinds of things that I wanted to work in more than mm. like references to specific cuts because that's the movie stuff and the music stuff was going to be there regardless in a way, right? right so it right, was more right. about just like things about the time period itself.
0: And and I I love how you get with AJ. We get into uh, what is appropriate for students to read in schools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I come down because I remember I have the memory that, you know, the town of Danvers when I was there was predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a memory of being the only person of color. Um, no, I, I guess there was one other – there was – um, This is just proving your point. Yeah. There was one other person. <laughs> there was another Asian student too. Um, And, you know, reading Huck Finn. And I remember – I still remember this because um, it was an English teacher who we, we all really admired. And I, yeah, I was hoping to still keep – Contact with it, yeah. And um, all semester long, I remember the, the teacher telling us about, well, you know, later in the semester when we read Huck Finn, you'll see blah, 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 that he's saying one thing, but he means something else. And then when we all read it, we're all like, does he really mean something else or <laughs> does he kind of mean what he's saying? You know, and so um, – but I remember having those conversations about Huck Finn. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell me um, what you've been reading more lately than that.
1: Yes. So a couple of things that I've been reading, and then a book I'm really interested in in picking up and diving into, which I haven't done quite yet. So um there's a Jamaican-British author who I adore, and I do not know why more people don't know him. His name is Kai Miller. Kai, K-E-I. Yes. He's a poet and a novelist, and he does have essays, too. Um I've So the first book of his that I read was a book called August Town, which is about Jamaica. And it's a little bit about also – I mean, it's co- it's complex and beautiful and sad. And it's also a little bit about the history of Rastafarianism, which I didn't know anything about at all. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that Rastafarians maybe are a like low man on the totem pole in Jamaica that they're sort of looked down on maybe as a cast. I don't – it was just interesting to, to read. Um And then I read another book of his, which is I think a perfect book called The Last Warner Woman, which – and I've recommended it to people. And people are like, oh, my God, this book is just – it's so, it, it's funny and it's sad and he's just amazing. Um, and I'm reading another one of his books right now. So if people haven't read Kai Miller, I really, really, really recommend him. Um, and then a book I'm looking forward to is a book by a friend of mine, Jam, uh, Ahmad Jamal Johnson, and it's his new book of poetry called hmm. Imperial Liquor. And again, I haven't gotten into it yet, but it's, I think it's interesting exploring things of like black exploitation from the 1970s and, um, and black culture of that time. So it's a book that I'm looking forward to.
0: Wonderful. Me too, then. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Fabulous. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.